But I think it's helpful to, uh, to look at 1 Kings 22. We don't have time today, so I'm going to describe it to you. But you should go back and re- actually go forward and read 1 Kings 22. In that passage, uh, evil King Ahab has done more evil than any other king up to that point. And he desires to go battle the Syrians. And he wants confirmation from all these prophets. And he finally goes to, to God's prophet, Micaiah. And Micaiah uh, shares this vision, which again, you should go read later. But Micaiah gets a glimpse into the throne room of God. And God's sitting on his throne, and it says all the heavenly hosts are there. And Ahab, uh, because of his evil, God has decided he's going to bring justice by, uh, by killing Ahab in the battle of the Syrians. God asked all the heavenly hosts, who shall I send to entice Ahab into battle? Which is something that King Ahab already wanted to do. He wanted to go into battle with the Syrians. One of the, the spirits there says, I will go. And God asks, how will you do it to entice him? And the spirit says, I'm going to lie to him. Now, why is there a lying spirit in the throne room of God? Well, remember, just similarly, in the book of Job, God is, uh, God's angels approach him and so does Satan. We're not told it's the throne room, but that's probably where he is. So God allows Satan to come in his throne room. And and the same way he allowed this evil spirit to come. But God cannot lie. God cannot sin. God is not wicked in any way. But he will use as the sovereign king over every dominion, every power, every spirit. He will use the wickedness of others to do as a means to do his justice. And so uh, in 1 Kings 22, though this that spirit is is a lying spirit is probably not from God. God uh, uses the means to bring justice to King Ahab. It's probably what's happening in 1 Samuel 16. This harmful spirit is, is from the Lord because the Lord is sovereign over all. And he's using this, the means of this harmful spirit to bring justice, which would be taking the kingdom from King Saul and giving it to King David. Our passage goes on to describe this spiritless king, King Saul. He's experiencing torment and suffering. He's become desperate. He's unable to make his own decisions. In fact, the, the, the servants, instead of commanding them, they start to, to give him suggestions of what he should do. He's clearly unfit to, to lead God's people. He is unwell, not whole. He has no joy. He's suffering. Instead of repenting and turning and crying out to God... He decides to bring someone to play him music, which music is a God-given thing that can point us to God. But I don't really believe in this moment that Saul's looking to worship God. I think he's looking to alleviate his pain, which is different than what David is going to do later. I wanted to pause for a moment and just think about the reality that that's actually something that we do in 2023. In our pain, in our suffering, in our torment, we often, instead of crying out to God, will go to something else to numb our pain. I wonder if that's where you find yourself today. Where do you go? Do you go to Christ or to something else to numb your suffering? Maybe your phone, your job, maybe the eagles. I wonder if you actually help other people with their pain And fill your whole day with that so that you don't have to think about what you're going through and therefore go to God. 
That's exactly what Saul did. He numbs the pain. He doesn't fix the deeper problems of sin and unfaithfulness. So Saul is presented as a spiritless king of torment who's no longer fit to be God's king. And ironically, he becomes dependent on the true king, David. But more on that in my third point, which leads us to our second point. The shepherd king of favor. We had our spiritless king of torment. Now we are introduced to the shepherd king of favor. Let's read verse 18. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. In contrast to Saul's spiritless rule, we learn that David is, the per- is in the perfect position to be God's king. He is proficient in the arts as a skilled musician. He is a warrior. He's a man of courage, a man of valor. He is wise with his words, prudent with his speech. It could also be translated prudent with his word. Where Saul rejects God's word in earlier chapters, David is proficient in God's word. He has a good presence. He carries himself well, which is essential in leadership. Verse 19, he's a shepherd, which is often how God describes his own leadership in the Old Testament. Caring for his flock. David is a Bethlehemite, which is drawing from Jacob's blessing in Genesis 49, where Jacob tells us that from Judah will come the king. He holds the scepter, not not Benjamin, Saul's tribe. David is a man of humility. He is told he's going to be king, and then he willingly goes and actually serves the king in his court as a musician. Imagine that your supervisor tells you, Excuse me, imagine that the CEO tells you that you're taking your supervisor's job because your supervisor has, is unfit, has been selfish, and you're just waiting to get his job or her job. How would you respond? David is, is, is not afraid of, of anything to come his way, and he is faithful and servant, serving and obedient. I'm reminded of Psalm 84.10 which says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I wonder, are you like David, content in whatever circumstances have been given you right now, even though you know that there'll be a day when you will obtain the inheritance? Or are you like Saul, who will do everything in his power to keep his power as king? David's father initiates a gift to give to King Saul, probably because he's wondering, wait, did King Saul find out that my son's going to be king and now he's asking him to come to his presence to, to, to get him? So he, his father sends all these gifts. But David brings it and there's no indication that David is afraid. He trusts the Lord. And to speak to David's character even more, Saul actually loves David, which is so ironic. He makes him his arm bearer. David goes from being a musician to his right-hand man in battle, carrying his armor. And lastly, Saul pronounces David as a man of favor. Verse 22, and Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. David found favor with Saul and more importantly, favor with God. And all of these things are great, but the foundational reason that David is, a, is the rightful king is verse 18. The Lord is with him. The language is in stark contrast to Saul, who God has has left because of his unfaithfulness. This passage reveals to the reader that David is the rightful king in every possible way. 
But the problem, as we've already mentioned, is foreshadowed in our, in our passage and will continue to play out in 1 Samuel. That even though David's the rightful king, he, even though he's been anointed and set apart, he is not yet sitting on the throne. There'll be a day when David sits on the throne, but it's not yet. He must humbly submit in obedience to God by honoring God's current king, Saul. I want to point us to verse 23 and give you my last point. The collision of kings. Excuse me. Sniffles. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Ironically, the only way Saul was able to obtain peace over this harmful spirit is when he depended on God's rightful king. The only way for Saul to be well was through turning to the provision that's offered by the rightful king. But in order to do that, Saul must humble himself and let the future king lead and comfort him. The question our passage leaves the reader is, will Saul humble himself before God's rightful king? They have a positive, peaceful interaction in our passage. And then, then our story abruptly stops. Leaving the reader to ask, as any good cliffhanger, what will become of the relationship between these two kings? Saul and his paranoia, overflowing from fear of losing his power, will do whatever it takes to remain in that power. He will lie, he will oppress, he will fight, he will kill. In contrast, David, who on the surface would seem to be less of a rightful king than David, but is a man after God's own heart, time and again, up to Saul's death, submits himself to the Lord. Now David's not perfect, and when we get to 2 Samuel, you'll see that. But in 1 Samuel, it's very clear that David has been chosen by God to be king. One commentator reflecting on this passage put it this way. To be sure, chapter 16 is about transition. A transition in leadership from Saul to David. Yet even though the spirit leaves Saul, he is not removed from the office. And even though David is anointed, he does not immediately become king. Saul retains all the external trappings of his office, but he is, catch this, an empty shell. David, meanwhile, is anointed, but is on hold. I'm reminded of the reality that all Christians here today find themselves. The already not yet reality of God's kingdom. That Jesus is Lord. And he's reigning in heaven as king. But when we look around the world, it appears on the surface as Satan and sin and death are at large. New life and salvation is ours in Christ. And yet, we continue to encounter the effects of the power of sin in our lives and in the lives of our loved ones. The reality of living between the two kingdoms is exhausting, it's overwhelming, it's discouraging. And for some of us, we can lose hope because it, it appears as if the darkness is winning. But friends, the prince of this world might seem to have retained all the external trappings of the power of this world. But I promise you, Satan's kingdom is an empty shell. Jesus is who he says he is. Our true Davidic king, who has defeated sin and will make all things right. 
like David, who, who through his music in some ways has power over the evil realm, Jesus far, far more has power over every kingdom. In the Gospel of Matthew, King Herod, the half-Jewish Roman puppet king, was visited by wise men who announced the coming of the true king of, of the Jews, the true king of Israel, born in Bethlehem, a king from the line of David. Herod ordered the genocide of every male child who would potentially be this king. God anoints King Jesus, a different king than King Herod, with his Holy Spirit at his baptism in the Jordan River. And then the Spirit immediately drives King Jesus into the desert to be tempted in the wilderness by Satan, where Jesus must submit himself to God, his Father, in all obedience And in his obedience, earn salvation for you and for me, for all his people who would believe and trust in him. Jesus, who is the second person of the Godhead, who was reigning for all eternity as king, left heaven, stepped out into our world, and became obedient to death on a cross, as Paul says it. And in Philippians 2, it is now reigning after his resurrection and ascension as king back on his throne. I have three applications for us, and, and we'll close. The first, one, the first one is a question. Who is the king of your life right now? Who is leading your every decision? Is it the rightful king, Jesus? Or are, are you, like Saul, attempting to be your own king, your own queen? Let us, in every facet of our life, submit ourselves to Jesus. And perhaps you're unaware of places in your life to submit over to God, I would encourage you to go to him in prayer to reveal where you have yet to give him authority. My second point is this, our second application. Do not be overcome by this evil age. Are you weary of the evil powers of this world seeming to have the upper hand? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When was the last time that you encouraged another member who needed to be reminded that Jesus is reigning as king, even though it might not feel that way. And my last application is this. Let us leverage all of our skills and talents and resources and time for God's kingdom. In our passage, God leverages gifts and skills that David has developed throughout his life as a shepherd, as a musician, to serve the king. I want to encourage you to consider how you might use your gifts and skills and passions to serve our king and his church. Perhaps you have the gift of prayer. Pray for another member. Maybe you're a great listener. Offer to meet and listen to those who are going through suffering. Maybe you're gifted in playing music. Then play on Sunday. Maybe you're a good teacher. Then help in kids' ministry. Perhaps you've been following Jesus for any amount of time. Then disciple someone who's been following Jesus a day less and younger in their faith. Maybe you're gifted in hospitality, host fellow members and new visitors over for a meal. Maybe you're great at initiating and galvanizing others, then bring God's people together. Perhaps you've been saved, maybe perhaps you believe that Jesus has saved you from your sins. I hope that that would be true. Tell literally anyone. Don't wait for the elders to set you up to do these things. Use what God has given you to leverage it for his kingdom. In closing, friends, we, we, like Saul, are unfit to rule God's kingdom, nor our lives. May we step aside 
for the true king to rule, God's church in our hearts. We can trust in him because he's the perfect king. He's far greater than any of the attributes mentioned about David. And it's in him we find our comfort. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we are grateful that you are a good king. That the, the king that David is pictured to be is a small image of the great King Jesus that rules us in justice and mercy. And we pray, Lord, uh, that you would lead us today. And if anyone here has not trusted in you as their king, we pray that they would turn to you in faith. Amen.